Are you ready to take back the night? We are this week on Turntables and Tea. I'm Charlie. I'm Corey. And we have our guests back with us, Sam. How's everybody doing? I'm excited again to talk about part two. Yes, yes, most definitely. And uh, so to pick up where we left off, as we said, uh, the 2020 experience was Justin Timberlake's comeback album in the spring of 2013. Huge deal. He was everywhere in 2013. It was pretty hard to escape him, but... He announced early on that there would be a part two to the album. And sure enough, part two followed in September of 2013. And uh, the anticipation was fairly high, I would say, because the first part was so successful. So it was like, what will part two be? Will it be a strict continuation? Will it do different things with the sound? Will it be good? Will it be underwhelming? A lot of questions in people's minds. And uh, overall, this wasn't quite as successful as part one. It didn't have the same anticipation for one, but uh, it's still there and it's a significant thing. And um, by this point, I was pretty fully immersed into the JT being a fan. And I actually pre-ordered the CD for this on Amazon because I was excited. I heard the album on uh, iTunes radio and enjoyed what I heard and got the CD and download. So... Another nostalgia bomb for me a bit. So uh, very exciting stuff. Do you guys remember where you were when you heard about part two, really? I have to throw it back. As anticipated of a release it was for me, part two fell way under my radar. I think I heard snippets. I didn't pick it up. It wasn't out of any feeling for it at all because I really didn't know what was on the album. Like I heard... We talk about Felix. Felix was like, yeah, have you heard part two? Like it crushed just like one. I was like, no, nah, I haven't heard it yet. You know, uh, I'll go at it. And I don't think I had listened to it as a whole album until this run to go through it critically as far as back then. I was still stuck on 2020. Was it, like I, I said last time, you know, it's up there in my playlist and it never leaves. And I was still so high on 2020 that this was an afterthought to me. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I didn't want to admit, but I, I don't believe that I listened to this from start to finish ever until until I, I knew I was going to be on here. I, I do like it a lot, uh, not quite as much as volume one, but and it definitely fell under the radar. I only ever really listened to some of the hit singles that came out of it, but uh, but still love it and uh, was pleasantly surprised when I listened to it from start to finish. Yeah. This one, I have to say, because I did hear it the first time around, it hasn't held up quite as well for me as it did back in 2013, but it also held up a bit better than I was expecting, because it had been a while since I had gone back to this one. So this was a nice uh, trip down memory lane, and uh, the overall reception was pretty mixed. It was once again the number one album, but it was about half as successful as part one, sales-wise, and uh, the reviews were pretty mixed. A lot of people said, we think these are just outtakes, which some of them were. Some of it was newly recorded material, but some of the songs were just leftovers from the sessions. He just decided, hey, I want to put them out. And the hits weren't quite as big. I think some of that had to do with the fact that, again, the singles from the 2020 experience, along with the Jay-Z collaboration, Holy Grail, were in such heavy rotation throughout 2013, it made it hard for another song to break through because there wasn't a real hit from this album until early 2014, actually. And uh, the most interesting thing about this to me was um, a few years ago in 2016, NPR put out an album of the 150 best albums made by women. And it was a good list, got a lot of positive reception. Um, but Jezebel, which is a feminist site, responded by uh, releasing an article called The 150 Worst Albums Made by Men, for some reason, <laughs> ah. and they put this on there. And wow. I was like, okay, it wasn't that bad, guys. Come on. And admittedly, it was before Man of the Woods came out. I know Corey loves it, but a lot of people don't. So I will say that this album, or the part two of this album, did sound a little bit more like uh, young Justin Timberlake. It was blatantly sexual. Uh, it, it, it resembled a little bit of uh, future sex and love sounds to me. Completely agree. Yippers. 
I, they were definitely going for a more contemporary sound um, as for something that would be a hit at this point in time. And uh, they did that. Uh, how successful they were kind of remains to be determined, I think, before we really get into this, which I'm kind of ready to do. Are you guys? Yeah, let's, let's do, it. do it. All right. So uh, I think we get to the future sex love sounds vibe immediately with track number one. Give me what I don't know I want. Yeah, this has a uh, jungle as sex metaphor, which uh, it got a comparison to the song Grilla by Bruno Mars, I mm. saw, which another jungle sex song. But we all know the best jungle sex song is Jungle Love, obviously, <laughs> by Morris Day in the Time. <laughs> so this isn't quite as good as that song. It's not an all-timer, but I remember hearing this on the iTunes radio, and I immediately really enjoyed this one, and I was a little disappointed that he only did a small snippet of it on the tour. It was basically like a 15-second interval between songs, uh, but I guess there was a lot to choose from, so they could only do so many, I guess. I don't know. Um, I haven't gone back to this one a lot since high school, so uh, I did go back to it, and I still enjoy the song, but I do think that it's just a bit generic in comparison to uh, both part one and future sex, for that matter, because, again, we've done this sound before at this point in time, and by 2013, it's not as unique as it was in 2006. So there's that. Yeah, I like uh, Corey in part one said that there was a lot of examples and metaphors for love throughout the album and uh and this is like an animal metaphor for sex what i really loved about it and it's kind of a recurring theme and one of the reasons why i do love this part too is there's like an electric funk sound to it and i love that and it's on a couple of these songs and uh you're gonna hear it a couple more times brought up but i did love that kind of it was different from the first album obviously but i i like that sound yeah for me i mean I'm not trying to beat it into the ground, but the first note I have is it's future sex love sounds to me. It's a little bit slow starting off for an album opener. I really fought with myself not to compare back and forth on this, but I believe it's inevitable as hard as it is to take yourself out. It's on the same note, really not doing justice because we're a part two. This isn't a standalone Justin Timberlake album in the sense of he put part two in it so it becomes encompassing. So that slow start that I loved on part one that I thought was really super realized and made sense and was a little bit faster in listening than it actually was in tempo because it was so well produced. I feel like we fall short here. This song for me doesn't get going until about like three minutes in where it starts to do a mix on itself. And that's just not my favorite as far as a, a, an album opener. That is a fair point. And um, yeah, with that being said, we go into another odd sex metaphor a bit with track number two, True Blood. This is a vampire love song. I absolutely love this hook. I mean, so evil in your dress, devil in the flesh. I've always thought this was a very cool song. Um, just, it does take you to another place. I do think it has pretty good production from Timbaland. There is a big drawback and it is the length. This song is nine and a half minutes long. It doesn't need to be, and that was a big complaint about this. This definitely could have been cut in half uh, and worked fine. And it doesn't have like something like Don't Hold the Wall. It doesn't have that club feel to it. The only disco thing about it is the guitar that reminded me a bit of Chic. But other than that, it just doesn't have that vibe that justifies it being as long as it is. Other than that, I really enjoy the song, but it is way too long. Yeah, immediately you get another kind of metaphor for sex and you had animal and give me what I don't know. And now you have like monster, vampire, werewolf. This I had in my notes, just kind of side note. I, it sounds like, like a Missy Elliott beat almost in the beginning there. I thought it was kind of like a rap beat at first. It sounded really good. A lot of dance breaks. Uh, again, I agree with you. I don't think it needed to necessarily be nine minutes, but a little reminiscence of Thriller, I thought. And uh, he actually samples the laugh from Thriller on that. Uh, I think it's, I can't remember exactly when in, in the song, but it was during one of the breaks you hear the laugh in the background. 
And I think this was kind of his spin on a Michael Jackson thriller. That's a cool, that's a cool way to, to look at it. Uh, musically, it starts off with a super strong beat. You get the Timbaland right off the joint. And there's chaos in the first verse for me, a little bit too much almost, because I lose Timberlake a little bit early on in this song to the beat. I feel like he falls behind it. I feel like it really is at the three-minute point of this song that it finds its footing and continues through to about the six-minute. The six-minute takes a real dark and spooky turn, and I know it fits into the thought process of this this spooky love the spooky sex romp that we're on but for me it's not necessarily the length because i'm down with it if the sum of the parts made sense going through in my opinion this one a lot of the parts just don't end up coming together fully all the way through this nine minutes so in that sense i lose a little bit of it it's cool it has some really cool music elements inside of it some some really neat ideas but again it just doesn't come all the way together for me all right i think we're mostly on the same page with true blood then next up we've got another uh sexual song but this one kind of has that entertainment value area of it with a cabaret this one features drake who is omnipresent to this day um this is the shortest song on the album which i think is interesting I don't know why this wasn't a single. I feel like being the shortest song on the album automatically makes you a candidate for that. And it does have a very good hook. I mean, I love like, can we discuss how fast you just got undressed? I mean, JT really does have a great rhythmic sense in his vocals that I really like. And Drake's part is good too. I'm not always the biggest fan of his, but I did enjoy his part in this song. It's very catchy. Um, yeah, I think this actually was a really big missed opportunity. I think even with all the other JT hits that were at the time, I think this would have broken through and become a hit uh, in large part because of Drake. This was the first time they ever worked together. There was already that anticipation. And Drake apparently can have every hit at the same time. He has that power somehow. So there's that. Um I've always enjoyed it, and a lot of other people did. I remember people enjoying this one at the concert that I went to, so I know I was happy to hear it because this was one of my favorites from uh, part two by far, so that's where I'm at on Cabaret. Yeah, I really enjoyed the Drake part, and it was definitely different from everything that we've seen and heard at this point. It was definitely different, but I think he did a great job. It was kind of cool. Drake only originally wrote 16 bars for the verse. And then Justin Timberlake said, I, I want a quote unquote Drake moment. So he wrote another 12 bars for it. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, and Justin Timberlake actually went on uh, Sway in the Morning and said that this is his strip club anthem. <laughs> that makes perfect and, and it does. I mean, it's literally cabaret. I mean, that's kind of what you think of. But yeah, I mean, all in all, it was just a very nice sound. And, and the switch up of Drake really did it for me on this one. Yeah. This is the first song on this album that's hit 100% for me when I'm listening through. This is a super strong Timbaland beat right off the joint. The only thing that it didn't even take me off. There's a similarity to the Neptune's Drop It Like It's Hot beat with the mouth popping in the background, but it doesn't take me away. I like it. The Drake verse is sick. Again, I'm not always there 100% on Drake, but he fit perfectly into this song. And again, I go back to it's the first time that on this album, I felt like, okay, there's a full thought. I don't have a cutting room outtake. I don't have a, maybe this could have made it on part one. Um, I, I have a, a full one here. I agree with you. It could have definitely charted as a single. I wholeheartedly believe that. I think my favorite part, though, is the way this song ends with this Parliament Funkadelic slash outcast sort of feel that takes us directly into the next track so much so that I have to I had to look and be like oh my gosh I'm on the next track already yes and that is a beautiful transition I'm glad that you mentioned it and that does get us to talk about the next track which is another one of my favorites here TKO uh, this song samples Barry White's uh, Somebody's Gonna Off the Man and uh, this is not a sex song this is a heartbreak song and it uses that boxing metaphor to do that, which I learned from this song because I don't know shit about boxing, but I did learn what a TKO is because of this song. So you thank you for yeah. that, JT. Um, 
Yeah, I always, this is another long song. It's over seven minutes, but I always really enjoyed it. And I felt like uh, it kind of captured, and this is honestly, this is a creative heartbreak metaphor because I guess it kind of is a TKO and then it's a very up and down kind of thing. I mean, especially like, this rematch sex is amazing. That's my favorite <laughs> line in the song. Um, yeah, and my... I have another theater kid memory of this song. So in the fall, we did a play every year and I was one day playing music from my phone because if I haven't mentioned before, sometimes I'd like to take it over because I got sick of hearing what they had to play all the time. And of course, I know there were space limitations, but we definitely should not have had um, boys and girls dressing in the same room. That was not a good idea. Fortunately, no sex crimes happened, but I can see where they sadly would in other cases. I've actually heard of it happening. Um, but anyway, one day I was playing this song and somebody eventually turned off. It's like, you know, I know it's a long song, but did you really have to do that, man? Did you have to kill my vibe like that? I actually had the pull somebody say, I said, you know, they really killed my vibe. I know it's a long song, but come on. <laughs> how, how many minutes do we get on this one? It's over seven and a half, I believe. Um, and uh, not everybody loved it as much as me. This was the second single on the album, and it only made it up to 37, which I uh, very strongly disagree with. It's probably the best song that ever peaked at number 37 on the Hot 100. <laughs> Odd place to peak, but I can't think of a better one than um, TKO. So, yeah, I really think this should have been a much bigger hit than it was. I know there was some saturation, but... This is a banger, and it still is. So that's where I am. I've always been a TKO fan. I was one of the only ones who went off to it at the concert, but I did, and I have no shame. There you go. Yeah, in the beginning, I said uh, I was guilty of, of only listening to a few of these songs when the album first came out, and this is one of them that I, I was jamming out to. I really love it. And when I was doing the research on it, I didn't know this, but it samples two songs. It samples You Know I'm Fresh by Short Dog and Bun B, and... It samples Somebody's Gonna Off the Man by Barry White featuring Love Unlimited. And I thought that was kind of a cool way fusing past and present, which Justin does so well. And he even goes futuristic, but that's a, that's another story. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that the song sounds like a more aggressive with a more toxic relationship part one. Like, I feel like it could be on part one. It's just a lot more aggressive. And he's talking about a relationship that didn't quite work out aside from what he was talking about the love in part one yes yeah i mean seeing your ex is that tko moment you know when you first see your ex with somebody else and 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 he gets that totally across in this song first time i really came down on this my first notes were we're directly into a dirty south beat you know you get that kill me with that coochie coo early on and and they really have this dirty south run going on we talked about it in part one with the length of the disco songs uh, or the club songs, I'm sorry, the club songs. And I was talking about early hip hop where a lot of the, the longer songs with just instrumentals were meant for freestyling. And I found that a lot on this one. I was like, man, I could see cats going to town. Then afterwards going through and researching, I found out that J. Cole ASAP Rocky and Pusha T did a remix of this called the Black Friday remix. And I don't know if you've ever heard it, but take a listen. Not necessarily my style, but as far as this song, it could have easily been dropped on this album as this song. And I love this song and I love the bass for it, but a cool listen if you if you haven't heard that one. It's it's a a really fully realized take not that tko isn't fully realized i enjoy this song i just thought it was cool to see it transformed uh and in my opinion it could have fit on the album as that version as well yeah um i did not i did see there was the remix i did not listen to it i will now but i just didn't really sound like quite something i'd get a lot from but now i'll check it out uh, i did actually want to talk about the video for this. I didn't watch it until I did the research for this. Um, this is a very Michael Jackson thing he did with the video for this. It's not choreography heavy, but it does have a plot oh, really? that spans the entire song. And uh, it's a toxic relationship. He's living in this big mansion, very reminiscent of a Crimea Rivers video. And um, 
The girlfriend is played by Riley Keough, who is an actress. She was uh, most famously in Mad Max Fury Road after this. But um, she has very notable lineage because her mother is Lisa Marie Presley, which means that her grandfather is uh, Elvis Presley. So that's pretty cool uh, lineage there, I think, especially considering that JT's from Tennessee and uh, Elvis was a big part of that uh, Memphis sound, as we all know. Um, and in the other scenes, we see JT tied to a rope on a truck's bumper and getting dragged on the ground. So it's a pretty cool video, I thought. <laughs> oh, man. And it's got, you said the Michael Jackson connection, but then you go to the Lisa Marie and there's so many, so many different connections throughout this whole entire thing. Being dragged by a bumper, though, that sounds pretty risque to me. Oh, it was not. It looked quite painful. He was fully clothed. It was It was in the desert. It did not look fun. But yeah, enough of that. I think this is a good time to transition into track number five, which is the lead single, Take Back the Night. And uh, this one is very retro. This definitely made it seem like this uh, part two would be a continuation of part one's retro sounds. But mm -hmm. That ended up not being quite what happened. This is a bit of an outlier here, actually. Um, but I loved it as soon as I heard it. I remember I went to Ireland with my family this summer, and I was listening to this on the plane to Ireland because I just loved the song so much. This did get some rotation. There were people who knew it. It only made it to 29 on the Hot 100, and this one definitely should have been a bigger hit, but it was released at the end of June of 2013 when Mears was still in the top 10. So it wasn't going to break through quite in the same way. And I remember this year, um, JT got the VMA Video Vanguard Award, and it was a fantastic performance. It was actually, I think, better than his uh, halftime show in 2018. It even featured an NSYNC reunion that was brief but notable. And it began with Take Back the Night, but that was just the opener. That wasn't what people were focused on. It was like, great performance, NSYNC appeared. They weren't focused on, oh, JT performed his new single during it. That was the afterthought. And I think that because of that, there were some issues getting it, the rotation it probably deserved. I remember hearing this back in the day, though. I, I mean... In fact, here's my hot tea take, and I already told you that I hadn't listened to this as a whole. I didn't know that this came from this album. I thought that Take Back the Night had to have come from another Justin Timberlake album. I was surprised when I saw it on the track listing for this. Yeah, this is another, this was another one of my favorites, and uh, I 100% knew it was on part two because it was one of the songs that I was listening to nonstop when it came out. But yeah, I mean, everything up to this point is deep and dark and real sexual. And we had animals and monsters and heartbreak. And this is the first to me, like feel good. You get the horns. And I agree with what you said. I mean, you could have this easily in part one as like one of the dance break songs. Really, really kind of the clouds open up and the sun shines down on, on uh, this is the part of the album that that happens. Well, what's interesting about this being the feel-good song is, this song was actually the center of a controversy. So there is an anti-rape organization called Take Back the Night, and they took issue with this song's title. They were not happy with it, and the executive director of this organization, Catherine Kostner, I hope I pronounced that correctly, said, quote, the lyrics are definitely very sexual and not at all clearly anti-sexual violence. Use me, for example, is not a great phrase for anyone affiliated with the organization. And they actually sent a letter to JT's lawyers and uh, he responded by saying he hadn't heard of the organization before and he expressed support for their mission and just decided like, yeah, this was a big misunderstanding, basically. And the organization made the decision to not sue. They decided it just wouldn't be in their best interests. I mean, I do think this was pretty clearly a misunderstanding. I know I hadn't heard of the organization until this controversy. So it might have helped them in a way to have it out there because it got more people to know who they were. Hot tea take. Yeah, I might come off as an asshole on this one. 
that's exactly what it sounds like to me is a let's get our name out there nobody was saying that they didn't have you in mind it was not an attack on your i'll give you a perfect analogy this is like the world wildlife foundation suing the wwf the world wrestling federation for the use of the wwf because it denotes negativity towards that blah, blah blah no 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 bull there's my hot tea take bull don't target this man for making a beautiful song just because it has the same name as come on man come on nope sorry i'm not with that yeah it got your name out there and of course you didn't sue because there wasn't anything behind it as far as slander to your organization shame on you for riding the justin timberlake wave <laughs> I never could have said that in high school. I would have gotten my head chewed off by, <laughs> by the feminists. I mean, but I mean, literally, if there was any type of slander inside of it, I would have to say, okay, calm down a little bit, JT. But there, it was never, that it was never a target. What a silly, uh, uh, no, I'll this go on is on. not a rape song in any <laughs> yeah. way. I never, ever thought that. Um. So, uh, no. yeah, but... I just felt the need to mention that. I thought that was an interesting tidbit about the song. So yeah. for me, that. Yeah, for me, this was this was almost akin to the suit and tie of part one for me on this album. Um, instead of a rat pack vibe, it had this really beautiful soul train vibe that I loved. The oh, production, yeah. the production on this is super, super reminiscent. We go back again of Michael Jackson for me. Um, and these horns, they add that beautiful extra level this is this is a great song sam said it really great too like a ray of sunshine on a very heavy start to this album i love yeah. this one this is pure off the wall to me and uh the video has some pretty cool moments too you see him in an nyc street scene along with clips from the jay-z tour which to me that takes us out of the street scene but i like the street scene parts and it reminded me jt was so uh well dressed during this era hell yeah of course, he had more money than all of us, so he could afford the good clothes, but he was very well dressed during this era. So if you yeah. want to sell your stuff, sir, I'm willing to buy to a certain extent. <laughs> sell it go. for five dollars. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but uh, speaking of that tour that he did with um, Jay-Z, the next song features Jay-Z, Murder, uh, another seamless transition. Um. This one, it's That Girl is Murder. She's a killer. Uh, this has always been a favorite of mine. I just love the groove to it. Once again, modern and retro at the same time. For me, is it as good as Suit and Tie? No. Is it better than Holy Grail? Yes. Hot tea take. I was going to say, that's a hot tea that's take hot, right there. Baby. <laughs> Holy Grail never did it for me. Never Ooh. did it for me. Um, no, and I love uh, Jay-Z's part on this. I mean, the first line, Yoko Ono, she got that Yoko, she got that shit that made John Lennon go solo. Anything, <laughs> uh, I mean, oh, I'm not boy. saying she was the sole cause of the Beatles breakup, but I don't think she helped it. She's just kind of a weird and... Uh, annoying bitch i think sorry yoko i know you're old now but <laughs> you're you're a weird bitch i'm sorry but <laughs> i i've never and it kind of in a way you know what it actually poses a question i never thought of does nsync have a yoko o now <laughs> oh, no. that's a that's a podcast of a different color right there <laughs> i never thought of that before but yeah, anything that rep that uh yeah, Jay-Z killed it on this one. Uh so that's what I think of murder. Yeah, I actually I didn't have too many notes for this one. I, I just we're back to the the raunchiness, kind of darker out of take back the night, but and I actually I actually said that too, the Jay-Z reference. I thought that was I thought that was good. Saying that she must be so good in bed to break up the Beatles. <laughs> said it in different words, but you know I mean I bet you Yoko Ono's a freak because with all those animal noises she made in the Get Back documentary. <laughs> I mean, she's got to be. Oh, yeah. you, guys, you guys are wild. For, for me, this <laughs> song, the first 45 seconds of the song are genius. Uh, and I'm not saying the rest of the song isn't genius, but this song builds in the first 45 seconds what most songs, in my opinion, take about a minute 30 to really get to. Um, the vocal rhythm inside of this, the start of the song, but throughout, 
uh, alongside the chromatic horn climb that goes into this beat for me is insanity. You know, you, you go right into the hook, right into the rhythm still being perfection. And then you get this Jay-Z verse, which is super crazy, but it fits perfectly. It's really, in my opinion, very reminiscent rhythmically and lyrically of what he gave us in suit and tie but it doesn't take away from it. And I, I enjoy it. Um, I, I like this song a lot. This is this is my third one so far. We've been on a run since TKO of, of songs that I really enjoyed on this album. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, man. Because it's, I mean, I think we've already made it clear it's not as good as part one quite as an album, but it does have some high points that I think are definitely worth talking about. And that's why we're here discussing it today. Yep. And um, yeah, we definitely switch gears with track number seven, though. Uh, we have Drink You Away, and this is a very country-influenced song. That was definitely the vibe that uh, he was going for, and it's about drinking away the pain, which is a classic country trope, that's for sure. He's tried Jack, he's tried Jim, but it can't does it. He just, he can't drink you away, so... I mean, she she must have that Yoko Ono power if he can't drink her away. Uh, um, he played this at the CMAs, though, right? Yeah, yes, so. he did. Uh, two years after it was released, he played it with um, Chris Stapleton, who was still uh, up and coming in the country scene at that time. He'd been around a while. but And they bashed it up with uh, Chris's version of um, Tennessee Whiskey. Heard that. And that got this song some notice uh, belatedly, and it made it up to 60 on the country airplay charts and number nine on the bubbling under. And um, this was definitely a precursor to Man of the Woods, that's for sure. But I will say now, I think that this is a better exploration of that sound than Man of the Woods, including Say Something, which was probably the more traditional one that was the Chris Stapleton collaboration. But I mean, does any song on that album give us a question as good as Don't They Make a Medicine for Heartbreak? <laughs> I think not. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, I had that CMA performance in my notes because uh, if anybody if anybody listening right now hasn't seen that, just look up Justin Timberlake, Chris Stapleton, CMAs. Beautifully done. And it it's transitions perfectly from Tennessee Whiskey to Drink You Away, this song here. This is one of my favorites on the album. And... Um, I'm not the biggest country fan in the world. I like it a little bit, but the influence and the way that he did this, put it all together, it was beautifully done for me. And uh, the little church organ that they have throughout the song, I think that kind of set up that collaboration, say something that you that you brought up. I thought I thought this was great. Yeah, I uh, I'm not the biggest country fan and I don't hate on country, but I got what I never thought I was going to get. And right away when this track started, I wrote Timberlake country because I'm getting country from Timberlake. This is before I even knew about the CMA thing. This is a reverse of the, the phrase that you have coined uh, lately, Charlie. I like this song more than I should. <laughs> this one is a guilty pleasure for me in so many ways. From the first time I heard it on, it sticks with me. I chuckle through it. I enjoy this song and I didn't think I was going to. That's why I say I, I like this song more than I should. This is a cool one. Yeah. But I Sam, I know you like Tennessee whiskey though. You do like that song. That is probably my favorite country song. One oh. of. It's definitely up there. It's not it's not a bad one, that's for sure. But I think Drink You Away is a good country song too. And uh, JT has a more um, distinctive voice than most male country singers from this era, I think, which also helps because in this era, one of the issues I always had with um, male country singers, everybody's like, oh, I love all these people. And I'm like, they all literally, these guys all sound the same, sound the like same. Luke Bryan, Blake <laughs> Shelton. That was the big thing at the time, the bro country. They all sound the fucking same to me. And uh, <laughs> I really, I was just, I was not here for it. I, um, yeah, when I do like country, it's usually if it's done by a woman, but that's I, I gotta say, I mean, that CMA performance, uh, it kind of introduced me to Chris Stapleson. And I know that we're not talking about him on this, this episode, but I, I, it opened up a whole new world for me because I, I love most of his music. Yeah. 
Well, it, it's relevant to the podcast, so it's okay. And we go off on tangents because, believe, I'll go off on another tangent later on about an artist I like later on in this also, episode. But also, Sam has now just solidified his next appearance on oh, the there podcast. Go. There we go. <laughs> if we do Stapleton, then Sammy's got to come back and do it. <laughs> oh yeah, because I don't know shit. So. <laughs> Well, as far as the full album goes, like from start to finish, I don't know much either about them, but there I, I would absolutely ones. listen to it. Well, you, you'd still know more than I do because I don't know. Hell yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we we switch away from the country on the next track, which is the more traditional R&B track eight, You Got It On. This is an electro R&B slow jam. Um, yeah, this one has never been one of my favorites here. This has always been a filler track to me. He does the falsetto the whole time. And um, that's not my favorite vocal technique to use for a whole song. It never has been. And I think that it worked on a song like Spaceship Coop because we're singing about, you know, going to space. It's otherworldly. Of course, we're going to sing in the falsetto. We have no gravity. Of course, you're going to sound like that. But um, for this, it just does not work for me. Um, I don't hate it. I uh, In my notes, I just said nothing interdimensional about this one. Too much gravity for me. There you go. I am completely on the other side, Charlie. I This is right down my, my alley, uh, granted, but I was driving when I heard this and I had I had never heard this song until we until I was listening to the album from start to finish and I I was driving and the song came on and I had to double take my radio because I thought a Bruno Mars song just came on I thought it was I and again I'm a big Bruno fan I love that kind of funky everything like he did like in 20 24 karat magic I thought that that was not exactly like that but I I love this song See, I I, I got to be with you on this one, Charlie. I heard it the same way. I think that you heard it in my notes. I love the vocal melody on this one, but this is super reminiscent of a spaceship coupe. And it, for me, it's a more listener friendly spaceship coupe, almost like a dumbed down spaceship coupe. It's still a super sexy song, but it's just not my favorite as far as this whole take. But it, it just... It doesn't hit the way Coop does, and it reminds me too much of Coop for it to be able to stand on its own. Yes. Maybe they were writing this on, maybe they did this before Spaceship Coop and then thought, wait, I have a better idea of what we can do with this. That's a very possible because I do think songs can um, evolve in the creative process. Heard. So, uh, but I don't know that for a fact. I wasn't in the sessions, as cool as that might have been. Yeah, but I mean, you ha hands down, the way they handle the sound sonically just takes you back to it, you know, in that subconscious way of the listener that we talk about, you know, it, whether it was meant to be there or not. Unfortunately, in this case, in my opinion, it takes me to another song. Yes. I'm the lone wolf on this one. <laughs> it's okay. Somebody's got to like the song. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> just shows you there's something for everyone. That's what we like. That is. Absolutely. So track number nine is called Amnesia, which is a fitting title because I actually totally forgot the song existed until I re-listened to the album. Um, so this one, I love the intro, very cool string intro. I love that vibe, of course, and it worked a lot on the prior album. Um, I think the outro to the song is very memorable. That's the only memorable part for me other than that. Yeah, it's kind of fitting that it's called Amnesia, but uh, not the most memorable for me, but it's when we start talking about fucking amnesia is where he really gets me. That's why I'm like, okay, now we've made it interesting with the changes and um, in a nice twist of irony, there is a very deep Britney Spears cut called Amnesia. Not one of my favorite songs by her either, but just a fun coincidence, I think. Yeah, the, the beginning of this one to me sounds like, just the beginning, sounds like it could be in uh, part one. It kind of reminds me of Push Love Girl. The ending, as you say, is memorable. I do like the ending. There was a classic Justin Timberlake kind of split and where he there was a breakdown and then it was almost a different song. I thought that it could be two separate songs, the beginning and the end. Uh, but but regardless, uh, all the way through, I did enjoy this one. 
Yeah, I, I'm so glad you said the start of Push Your Love Girl, because for me, that was the first note of this. Our strings are back. Our strings are back from part one. We haven't seen them come up here. And immediately, it gives me a sense of part one. But as this song goes on, this is, you said the Justin Timberlake break and come back to a different song. I feel that inside of this, like a couple of the songs on part one, this is an evolution inside the song and I enjoyed it. And I really thought that this one for me was fully realized and really a part of part one. Uh, this one is hands down, I'll die on this hill. This one should have been on part one. It actually is not in sync with the rest of, of what's going on here. And unfortunately, again, it adds to the thought or my thought of, is this a bunch of B-sides? Did we get a bunch of afterthoughts in this part two? Yes. Um, and uh, when you speak of B-sides, I don't know if any song exemplifies the outtake feel better than the next song on the album, Only When I Walk Away. It features a sample from a song called Lustful by Amadio Minghi. Very cool song musically, but uh, lyrically incredibly redundant and actually annoying. And it's over seven minutes long, and I don't know how a song can sound unfinished at that length, but this one does. Um, yeah, I just, I forgot how annoying this song was, but then I re-listened to it, I was like, oh my goodness, this song is so annoying, and, uh, I cannot believe that he performed this on the tour now, like, I, I didn't think about it much at the time, I figured, like, you know, kind of a good live thing to do because of the musicality, but I felt like you literally had that girl and Spaceship Coop on the previous album you could have performed, and you chose to do this, seriously? I, I don't understand. Um, I'm gonna, I just plan on forgetting this one all over again and how annoying it is because I just, I can't do it this time. I tolerated it in high school, but now, no, I don't. Yeah, Charlie, we're on the same side on this one. To me, so the guitar is what's sampled from uh, that guy on Medio Minge. Yeah. And to me, it sounds like the beginning of like a truck commercial. Like I, this, this one, this song to me, and I guess this could be my hot tea take for this episode here. I don't usually have anything bad, like negative to say on when we're talking about these two albums, but this one, I, I mean, I'll, I'll skip it every time I listen to it. Yeah. I, I have to focus on the word Charlie used and that's unfinished. Uh, for me, the shared fuzz effect that is on the vocals and the guitar isn't realized until the guitar comes in and it has this very and i'll use another word charlie used annoying quality to it because it's so brash and it's so like nails on a chalkboard until you realize that it's mimicking this guitar fuzz for me this is again unfinished because i feel like it's not composed correctly like if you drop the six the part at the six minute in the middle of this song and make it a full break this song makes sense on on both sides of it but at six minutes if you give me the song breakdown as, as the outro it, it doesn't really work in my opinion this goes forward solidifying this cutting room floor stuff that unfortunately i feel like we're getting a little bit of here i i have an awesome question to ask us all at the end of this but th it, it goes along the same lines it, it's just something that is not for an album yet it might be at one point if you really work on this one but this one doesn't belong at all yes but uh fortunately with that being said i think we can only go up from there and uh we have um now gotten to the point where we're at the close of the standard edition of the album um it closes with uh, not a bad thing this is a nice little love song, I would say. It has a nice melody to it. Um, third single from the album, biggest hit from it. It was a top 10 hit. It peaked at number eight. It definitely wasn't as big as the singles from the previous part of this project. But I remember people really enjoying this one at the concert, too. They were pretty excited here because it was the, that most recent hit that he had done at that point in time. Um, I think it's a good song, but I don't think it's like a great, I mean, musically, it reminds me quite a bit of um, what goes around comes around. 
And it's not as good as that song, in my opinion. Uh, but I could see why it was a hit. I mean, this is something that's uh can fit on multiple formats for people. I feel like this is definitely a good light FM kind of song. And um the video was kind of interesting too. So the video does not feature JT, but it features um there was a couple that was riding the Long Island Railroad and a man proposed to his girlfriend on it to this song. And so the video makers decided to try finding this couple, which I honestly think is a bit creepy, but they tried to do it. And that was the basis of their video. And it's documentary style. I mean, it's definitely not as good as the TKO video, but it's an interesting idea for a music video, even if I don't think it's the most interesting. But uh, yeah, that's um, not a bad thing. It's a, not a bad song. Yeah, I think that this is the, the most heartfelt song on the album and i i felt like it was really kind of going back to justin's roots because i could see this being an in sync song Ooh. and I, and i think i think that it would fit effortlessly in uh, volume one i agree with you that it's not the best song I, that i've heard on the album but but i i really enjoyed it i love the fact that you took it to in sync because i didn't take it as far but my note for this is such a clever way to end the album because it reminds me and i would think most listeners of a younger pure timberlake sound so not only does it champion the way that he can still do that but it also is a great reminder for us at the end of both of these parts of how far he has come as an artist and how many different sounds he can give us other than this but nonetheless like i said a clever way to end it because we're reminded of who he was yes and uh, i i think it's a pretty good closer to the album except it's not quite so i was always very confused um when i saw the track listing for this it said the last song was 11 minutes and 28 seconds and i then heard the song i'm like well no it's not that long but sure enough he goes uh back further he has a hidden track here and it is an acoustic ballad called pair of wings uh, uh, did you guys get a chance to uh, dive into this one? I'm curious what your thoughts are on it. The craziest, coolest thing I think about this is he did an old school 90s CD hidden track in a digital age. And my old ass wouldn't have realized this. I reviewed this as two separate songs. And how can you have such a break in between? Because on the album... It just says not a bad thing. Even on the Spotify, it says not a bad thing. It wasn't until I got to the wiki that I had to go back and alter my notes on this because the wiki was like, hey, Pair of Wings is a separate song. And I would have sounded like a fool because you got me, Justin. You you put a little gap in there and I didn't realize what happened. I thought you were on the Justin Timberlake, like we touched before, Sam said, the breakdown into an, another thought. And I was like, two Two totally different thoughts. What are we doing? As a hidden track, it's a neat little, uh, beautiful composition. I, I really like the way it's composed. Hot tea take. I don't feel like Justin Timberlake's vocals fit directly on the guitar. In fact, sometimes I feel like he's, it's not that he's flat, but it's they're not meeting on the same note. It's just a hidden track to me. You know, it's a fun little jam. Maybe he threw it together in a couple minutes. It's a neat little one. Cool guitar composition, though. I give him that. Yeah, not to be repetitive, but I I wouldn't have found it either. Not that I'm as old as Corey, but, uh, <laughs> but I wouldn't have been able to find it either. I, I kind of stumbled across it by accident. But yeah, I, I, again, not to sound repetitive, but I, I thought it was a cool hidden track. The guitar was awesome. It wasn't my favorite, but very cool that he could slip it in there like that. Yeah, I do agree. I feel like that kind of acoustic guitar thing is better for the other musical JT, James Taylor, not Justin Timberlake. <laughs> um, I agree that it's a cool little hidden track, but this song really kind of passed me by until I went on the internet and saw somebody totally convinced. And I mentioned it in the last one, but... There's no changing my mind on this. So um, I'm thinking that this song was written quite a bit before the sessions for this album. I think this is from a different era and he decided to bring it back because 
This appears to be an answer song to Every Time by Britney Spears, which was on her In The Zone album 10 years prior to this one. And uh, for those who don't know, um, Every Time is widely believed to be an answer song to Cry Me A River, which was, of course, JT's heartbreak anthem because he was very unhappy and really put that in the song and uh, people pretty quickly picked up that the song was about uh, Britney Spears because he had a lookalike in the video. And uh, Every Time was also pretty widely interpreted as the answer to that, also based on its video, which had a similar scene to it, kind of. And in this song, he's talking about having a pair of wings, and in Every Time, Britney sings about how without her wings, she feels so small. And so it seems like a pretty obvious answer to that song, in my opinion. Um, a lot of people did not like the song. Actually, critic Dave Hanratty called it an astonishingly bad song. I wouldn't go that far. No. Um, but I, I think it's a neat little thing, but I definitely, it seems too obvious to not be an answer to every time. It's just kind of this musical back and forth they had going on for a while. But because of that, obvious this i don't think it was written during the sessions for the 2020 experience i'm thinking it honestly probably predates um future sex yeah i could see that i could definitely see that you know what's crazy and and wow that's such a wild conspiracy but i mean in an album that in a love album as far as part one was that i just always took for granted that it was for his wife and and throughout now you've you've gone on I'll just use the word conspiracy theory of that he stuck in there two shout outs to Britney. You know, that they they were in love back in the day. You, you never know how far that goes into somebody. So that's that's a cool take. I appreciate that one. Thank you. Well, this is more obvious to me than a blue ocean floor. That's yeah. um my thought on that. But I don't know if blue ocean floor is or not. But this one I'm definitely convinced is but we don't know for sure because he hasn't spoken on it. But <laughs> there is that. And um, once again, we have a couple of Target Deluxe bonus tracks to discuss. The first is another Rob Knox track, Blindness. Um, this song to me is very 90s pop rock. That's really the vibe I get from it. Uh, this one's okay. I feel like, again, it's pleasant enough to listen to, but definitely a bonus track. Yeah, I'm with you there. For me, I'm going to go as far as saying it fits better than You Got It On. And you could have put it in the You Got It On spot and it would have been more successful there than You Got It On was. I love the horns and the keys in this one. This this one actually ends up reminding me of a fully realized piece from part one. And that's a, another reason why I think that it would, it would have fit so well up in the you got it on spot at the very least. Yeah, unlike my feelings on a part one's deluxe album, uh, I thought that this one was actually, uh, these two songs are actually very good. And I really love the subtle horns in the background, subtle horns and guitar that go on in this song. Justin does a great job at being his own backup singer in this song. It almost sounds like a like an acapella band. I, I thought this one was great. Right, there we go. I actually, I kind of, now I probably would put this in place of You Got It On, actually. I do prefer it to that song. Um, And the next bonus track is a Timbaland joint. It's Electric Lady. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think this is a solid Timbaland track. I think the main reason I'm guessing that it wasn't included here is because it kind of would have blended in with other songs here um, sonically. But I definitely like this better than uh, You Got It On and Only When I Walk Away. I mean, that that's basically where I'm at on both of these is you can pop them in up top. And I think they would have fit a little bit better. And, and I, I agree with you on the Only When I Walk Away. It might have been there as well. Yes. Yeah, I think you can tell that this is Timbaland too. I mean, it's oh, yeah. a very nice blend of, uh, we keep repeating it, but Future Sex and Love Sounds, but mix in a little bit of funk and I know that Corey can appreciate, I think the bass line in this is uh, is really the MVP of the song. Oh, yeah. Yep. And uh, there we have it, the 2020 experience, two of two. Um, what grade would you guys give this part of our experience? So for this one, uh, again, like I said in the beginning, I, I don't 
like it as much as volume one. And uh, I didn't know any of the critic stuff that you said earlier. I didn't know that people had that negative stuff to say about it, but I'll give this a B minus. Yep. I'm right there with you. B minus is my grade on this one. Um, it falters because of the part of it being inside of an encompassing two album run being called a part two part one was so fully realized that when you get to this it loses a little bit from its uh all over the placeness uh there are definitely high points throughout but even with those doesn't carry it over a b minus for me i have the exact same grade you guys do b minus so yeah, because there's definitely some filler here that bogs it all down. I feel like maybe it might have been a better idea for him to do like a deluxe reissue of the 2020 experience and maybe just have like an EP edition like Lady Gaga did with the Fame and the Fame Monster. I think that would have been a smarter move than a whole other album because, uh, yeah, as we said earlier, some of it definitely gives off outtake vibes and better left on the cutting room floor. We didn't need it. Yeah, following up. Uh, something as I would consider part one a masterpiece, in my opinion, following something like that up, it's tough anyway. And if these really truly are, you know, B-side songs to follow, to follow that part one up with this, it, it's tough to do. You guys really both touched on the question that I wanted to ask you guys. And that was, do you think that this could have been with rearranging where the tracks are a successful double album, so to speak? Do you think it could have been released all at once and moving songs around and it been successful? I'm going to go first and say that I don't think it could because a lot of these albums on the second part are a little bit too much. I love the fact that you said, Charlie, that you could have done an EP album or, you know, an extended jammer later on. And I think it would have felt better. I don't think this could have been a fully realized double album i i think if you got rid of a couple of these songs i mean not a bad thing would be great in it uh cabaret take back the night would be great in in part one and i i think that a couple other songs even though they were a little bit different vibe i think they could fit if you rearrange the songs the song order but yeah you would have to get rid of a couple of these songs i think yeah, that's why I thought like EP, like the Fame Monster for Gaga, that EP, it's eight songs and they're killers, admittedly. And it was pretty defining for, for her because some of them were huge hits. Uh, I'm thinking that's how you do a part two. I think that's a better extension than to have done this as just a double album. I think that is what should have uh, been done. But Well, that being said, what's your favorite track on this album, Charlie? Oh, oh boy. Um, <laughs> I gotta go with TKO. A uh, lot of nostalgia for me for it, and I still really enjoyed it upon this lesson. Sam? Well, uh, I don't feel as confident now because of the way you guys reacted to it, but I think you got it on. Again, in my opinion, I, I guess it's right down my alley. I like that funky sound. Uh, I think that might be my favorite one on, this, on, the, uh, on the album. There you go. There you go. From me, it's murder. Uh, Murder is really genius, in my opinion, as far as the way it's produced and put together. And it comes together as, as a full, beautiful thought for me. Murder is the one. All right. Well, there we have it. Our first ever two-parter done. That's so yeah. exciting. Uh, <laughs> and uh, hopefully that means more uh, double albums for us in the future, if you all enjoyed this one. I'm hoping that you did. Um, thank you, Sam, for coming on with us. It was great to have another voice at the table. Yeah, thank you guys again for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. And if you ever want, want me back for an album, I am ready and willing. Well, you've already signed up for Chris Stapleton. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there it is. Yes, if we need you, we will definitely uh, be keeping you on call, especially after football season is <laughs> over. Yeah, my schedule will be much more wide open. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure it will be. But uh, so with that being said, though, it's um the end of our 2010s exploration, even though it was mostly one year, but <laughs> pretty cool that we did that, I think. Um, yeah. So next month is going to be our first hybrid theme month. We're going to be doing two things in one for December. Um, first off, Corey and I are each going to pick up an album for the holiday season and to get into that vibe. 
And then in the second part, we'll be discussing uh, an album released in this year of 2022 that we'd like to discuss before we bring in the new year and whatever that will bring us. Uh, there's already a couple of things I'm looking forward to for 2023. And uh, and so with that being said, I need to announce my pick for a holiday album. Um, a bit of an issue I think with picking a Christmas album is there isn't always a lot of tea with a holiday album. <laughs> a lot of times it can be kind of a contractual obligation, <laughs> but there is going to be tea surrounding the holiday album if you're Elvis Presley circa 1957. I like it. And uh, there is some because he was such a controversial figure. And because of that, in part, we will be discussing 1957's Elvis's Christmas album. That was also reissued in 1970, but we'll be discussing all of it, Corey and I. Uh, nice. In the meantime, please feel free to subscribe to us wherever you're listening to us. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Turntables and Tea Podcast. And just say nice things about us. And uh, until then, just keep on listening. And uh, you don't have to have a suit and tie ready to listen to us all the time. So thanks again for joining us, folks. Peace.